The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Grape color of the of the microphones was that? There's a reason. Well, well, so we, and there's not wine it's all over. So, it, right? it, you can't tell if there's we, wine all over. We've right. spilled wine on this tablecloth so many times. So hey, that everybody, welcome to the winemakers. Are we on? That was. That was a, the live that's cold a, intro. I like. I've been wanting to do that the whole time. The the the. The stupid things that we say before we start recording are usually better than the things we say once the, we hit play. Well, so at that point, uh, right, like but that. probably but probably edit out for a good reason. No, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, no editing at all. So I'm John Myers, your host, and I'm here. Welcome. Hey, hold on a second, John Myers. Welcome back. To the winemakers. Thank you. Glad After to have you eight back. Weeks here. Eight gone, weeks gone, man. I'm. So, oh. It felt like it felt like years. <sighs> well, <laughs> anyway, welcome to the show, and we have Nicole Rollet from Shen Blue, a place that I absolutely John's love. Favorite winery. Love it. Yeah. And we went and visited uh, when we were there last year, and I need to go again. I need to go now. So, but anyway, I'm here with my friend Sam Katuri, Sandra Bernstein. Bernstein. We are broadcasting live from the Girl Hi, in the John. Fig. Hi, Sandra. It's so nice to see you. It's been a while. And Brian Casey. Brian Casey is opening, o- opening, opening wine. wine and sniffing it. Is it a, a bottle of Shannon Blue Rose by, by chance? It is. A nice, <laughs> How could I have guessed? Now that I need some of. And then we have Lars. Lars, I didn't get your last name, but welcome. Uh, traveling with Nicole. Lars Kronmark is the head chef at the CIA uh, in Napa. Ah. Oh, 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 just the head chef at the CIA in Napa. Yeah, that's uh, that's oh. all. That's all. Just hanging out at the corner of the table. Can, can, We're, can, now, you can know, I, John shows back up, and all of a sudden we've like really stepped the game up here. I mean, <laughs> you know, we had we had military members last week, but well, wait a minute. We were drinking '96 Klopp okay. uh, Cornas on the Dude, last show, so I don't if you know. Didn't uh, tell them they wouldn't know. And here here comes the guy <laughs> who actually gave it to us. Uh, Mark from the Roan Room has just walked oh, in. Oh, hey, Mark. I think he's got uh, another bottle of Cornas for us. He's got some wine for me, so. Uh, Thank Roan you, Room Wine Club deliveries. Yes. At the Girl in the Fig. Is that a thing? Is, is that a thing or is that just for John? Personalized service. Personalized service. Yeah. Uh, well, would expect. expect uh, what about Lars? And Lars. Yes. Uh, welcome to the welcome to the winemakers podcast. You're welcome. This is a uh, treat to be here Sunday morning, yeah. and uh, certainly you like to bring a little slice of uh, Napa or to Sonoma. Well, you know. Um, we, we we forgive you. <laughs> no, I, I love. There's there's always some talk of a, a rivalry between Napa and Sonoma. I mean, at some point, it's just kind of silly. Um, it is. You know, we make wine sixteen six hundred yeah. from vineyards in Napa. My dad farms in both valleys. Yeah. Um, and they're both just really great places to be. And yeah. let alone both make beautiful. food, make Absolutely wine, whatever it is. Beautiful. Just great places to. When be. it comes to food and wine, it doesn't matter where you're from. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, hey, guys. Oh, hey, Brian. Um, Can I say that um, I've been uh, anxiously awaiting this show? Um, 
I've loved the Chant Bleu wines for a long time. Uh, when I was the buyer here at the you, Girl in the you Fig. You turned me on, Tom. We put it on by the glass, and uh, the rosé by the glass, which was amazing. And uh, uh, put the Heloise on um, oh, the, by the bottle. The, and the reds, the 07 reds were uh, fantastic. And John turned John onto it, and he became uh, a fan as well. A big fan. And then getting to meet Nicole was, um, was a game changer because she's um, such a passionate, interesting, charming um, person. And um, um, it's amazing what they've done with the property there in France. So maybe if we can just let uh, Nicole uh, take over and give us a, uh, a little history of the property in France and uh, welcome, what's been going Nicole. on. Yeah, welcome, Nicole. Yeah, welcome to the Girl in the Fig. Yeah, welcome yeah, to Sonoma. So Brian steers us to contact. an incredible right. treat for me. And there's nothing that I could possibly say or do at this point that would live up to that introduction. <laughs> uh, but uh, let's say that uh, for me the exciting thing was to go on this unexpected adventure you know we had a 25-year plan to take over a completely abandoned ancient property way away up in the mountains in the south of france so on a one-lane road <laughs> that is really tough to drive barely paved it's yeah i mean uh, it's those are the best all the best vineyards are at the end of roads that are like that I I, I can mean, imagine. I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced. But this is a serious highly biased but road. thoroughly convinced yeah. you, you meet somebody on this road you're, you'd, makes you don't Nor back makes up. Norbaum look like a highway? Yeah. All right. It's uh, a little zigzag way up to the top of the Saint-Amand, which is in the Dentelle de Montmirail above Gigondas in the uh, Mont Ventoux. So we're on the same latitude as Chateauneuf-du-Pape, yep. but um, you go up... You're east of Chateauneuf-du-Pape. That's right. right. And what happens is you, you zigzag up to this little abandoned valley which is a um, mountain saddle which has a ninth century priory which had no water nor nor electricity when we showed up there nothing but those ruins that you sometimes pass on the side of a road that are covered with ivy right. and you know, the, a proper project that looks so pretty over there but tacky here you know, you, you, you <laughs> well, it's, re it's real there, John. <laughs> 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 you know, there's no ninth century priories in Sonoma Valley. No, we got stuff going back to like the 1890s, which in in lots of places in France is like new. You know? <laughs> oh yeah, they've got on standards know, like that. Industrial zones with Leclerc stores and etc. That amazed me. Buying wine in France, there are aisles and aisles. One aisle at Leclerc for just magnums. So, you know, when we came to your place, we bought wine for six weeks. And I, I finished it when and I it got lasted, home. And it lasted three days. <laughs> and I, I've got, well, it lasted, we did buy some in the, in the Loire also. But, yeah. you know. Anyway. Well, in this property, Nicole, when, when you took it over, it was in a little bit of uh, disrepair. I mean, there was, I think it was a... Uh, a little disagreement between a couple going through a divorce, and so the the property suffered. So um, the, it had been stuck in a inheritance feud for a number of years, uh, and uh, as a result, the world had kind of moved on. For centuries, these high altitude properties were really prized. But remember, nobody had water and electricity then, yeah. so uh, it was easy to to live up there. But then, when in the valley in the fifties, all of the creature comforts started arriving. Uh, suddenly, 
the size of the investments to turn those those other properties around when they didn't have any water from the city, etc. And the vineyard, same problem. With the arrival of chemicals, mechanization, the creation of cooperatives, suddenly there's an exodus from these high-altitude uh, vineyards down to the valleys where they can get really big yields uh, with you know Monsanto and all those guys moving in. And uh, subsistence farmers finally getting access to tractors and things like that. So why break your back doing everything by hand for right. low yields when you can sell everything to the same price for the same price to the cooperative and get you know much better yields? In fact, yields start going up so much at that point that the Appalachians start capping the yields, and suddenly, yeah, uh, we're the the high altitude properties left with yields that are somewhere, like in our case, between 14 to 25 hectoliters per hectare, which is less than a ton an acre. Yeah, because you're up at about 1,800, 2,000, something like that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's way up at the top. So it's where four Appalachians connect, mm -hmm. Gigondas, Côte du Rhône, Côte du Ventoux, and Séguré. And up there... So uh, are you in all, three, all four of those Appalachians, or is that just yeah, what Appalachian like do you land in? Right. It's that's really crucial aspect yeah. to why we did what we did. It was the parcels, the, the, the blocks which are all right around the house, all belong to different Appalachians and that map Whoa. was done in such an arbitrary way. If you look at, at a map of Gigondas, you know, it's the middle of the night and you're having trouble sleeping. <laughs> Go to the internet and okay. find a map of Gigondas and look at the kind of thing that <laughs> I do all the time. Exactly. <laughs> look at the upper left hand corner. You'll notice that there's this just straight line that was drawn on a map by, you know, two bureaucrats fighting over, you know, something. Right. Yep. And there's absolutely no correlation in that area between the quality and the style of the soils and how the Appalachian map plays just out where the lines came together exactly and so we had to spend lots of our time not just res uh, restructuring and restoring the medieval vineyard with these very ancient Grenache and Syrah but also rethinking completely and getting to know the style of the grapes and kind of redrawing our right. own Appalachian map right uh, and so sometimes our wines fall into the pre-existing uh, uh, Based on what gets and, into the blend. Yeah, and sometimes they don't. And huh. so when we get to those crossroads, we just step out and we blend the wines the way we think is best for the quality of our of our wines and not uh, following mm. the Appalachian. So we're kind of one foot in and one foot out. And the Appalachian guys have actually been very uh, helpful and supportive. But on the other hand... We can't They're also not interested in redrawing the lines. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. The so map shall not be redrawn. Yeah, no. no. So uh, wow, that's fascinating. Was that so ever a consideration when you first took the property over? Was to I think at the time we underestimated a little bit the the importance of how the Appalachian system in France controls so much of what people get to do. Yeah. And. Um, I think we made a, we made so many mistakes from the beginning. I mean, I don't think you can ever venture into something that's very experimental and and off the beaten track, and not make a bunch of mistakes. If you're yeah. kind of designing your own destiny, uh, that sounds good on paper, but the reality of that means that you're right. uncharted waters and right. you're going to do a lot of trial and error. Um, I think that's probably ended up being one of the strengths of the project as well. Well, it's In definitely given you more freedom, right? It has. You know, we've we fought for that, but I, th I think now is when it's really yielding its results because yeah. I think little by little people, when they get to try the wines, the logic of what we did and how we blended them 
hopefully comes through. Uh, whereas if we had gone off on a very strict system where we had just followed the guidelines of what other people were doing, we would have been locked into a, a, a style that wouldn't reflect this very particular mountain fruit that we get to work with. Yeah. Because mm. the Appalachian, of course, uh, is defined for people typically in the valley. Right, And if right. you look at an Appalachian like Gigondas, which, you know, I love so many of the wines from there, but that goes from 250 to 550 meters. And everybody knows that at the top of the mountain, you get snow and in the valley, you get rain. Yeah. You harvest in October instead of September. All those things, you know, What's are, what's are the very, elevation? Very defining in terms of the style. What's your elevation at your vineyards? So uh, our, our vineyards go from 550 to 630 meters, which is all around you so know 1800 to 1800 feet. Pretty so much. Basically, it's the same. You know, the, it's the top of Moon Mountain Moon, district. Yeah, right. You know, Mount Veeder, Moon Mountain. Uh, you know, Corbin Cameron's property is one of our the highest that we work with. It's a you know 19 to just around 2000 feet. Bismarck's a little bit higher up there, but it's, uh, you know, for, for it's reference a, it's sake, it's the mountain yeah. range between Sonoma and Napa in, in, in scale. Yeah. yeah, I think if you look around the world nowadays, many consumers and are, are starting to understand the difference between mountain and valley fruit, not better or worse, just stylistically, right. it's easy for them to understand those concepts because it relates to stuff that they've experienced as opposed to having to learn lots of lingo and a bunch of specificities of appellations. And so uh, there's a bit of a redrawing of the world wine map mm -hmm. around those notions. And what's happening in France that doesn't always make sense to me is that the appellations don't necessarily reflect the third dimension. Right. And I feel like if you are going to be really Appalachian driven, then be consistent and go all the way and have a way yeah. to differentiate that because it does help consumers figure out a style that they know they like. That's ex it's exactly why we pushed for the Moon Mountain District Appalachian. Uh, you know, we have these, these mountain grown wines um, and we were putting Sonoma Valley on the label. And, and I love Sonoma Valley. There's, there's great wines made in Sonoma Valley, but it didn't represent mountain fruit by putting valley on the label um, so I, I you know the 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 corollary between you know what you're talking about it is to put it in you know terms of napa and sonoma it's as if you know the lines for what was sonoma valley and napa valley came together arbitrate well corbin actually has this going at, at, up at corbin cameron yeah there's part of the vineyard is in napa county um, and if they make a wine that's just from that block, they can call it a Mount Veeder Napa wine. And if they make it from the other side, they, they can call it a Moon Mountain District wine. Yeah. And then if you make some with both, uh, well, then it's a California wine. Right, I think you know? uh, one of the things that amuses us a lot in France is to see how uh, in the U.S. and California and Napa in particular, people are moving more and more towards a sort of Appalachian-driven right. uh, fine print. Like, no, <laughs> and we're working so hard to be able to, to soften those rules and, and be able to have uh, lots of, of place for exceptions to them. Well, and it's for financial reasons, right? I mean, everyone, you, you want to have Tokalon on your, uh, on right. your bottle. You want to have Mount Vida on your bottle. Um, but what's interesting about your property is if, if it was flat... If you didn't have any mountain there at all, you'd probably adhere to the normal standards of, uh, of, of the regions. You'd have wines made in Gigandas or Ventoux. But imagine, because I, I think this is important for people to understand, imagine Burgundy if all of a sudden a mountain 
came up in Burgundy that was 1,800 feet, and then people were growing grapes on the top of it. Would, be a would ski you resort on the top of it? <laughs> <laughs> right. But but how different would that wine be from all of the other wines that were grown in that region? And would you have to somehow make allowances for that and, and reclassify? And so in essence, that's what you've done there. You've taken a super Tuscan model um, in a way where you've done what you think is best to make the highest run. quality wines. It's a super run. It's a super run. It is. It, yeah. it is. It's exactly. It's a super run. And so then you can start putting Cabernet and don't do it. <coughs> but their Viognier sort of mirrors conditions in Condru because even though you're at that elevation, you've got similar microclimate conditions. And so your Viognier's are spectacular, by the way. Um, and well, the white, you're, the, you're uh, like way south of Condru though. So that's right. So that's the, that's the by whole, getting the elevation. That's the whole secret right and challenge it's that being very far south but very high up you have one foot in the southern zone one in the north and for the reds that became a really defining reason why we made the two blends of Abelard and Eloise the way we did because I was just trying to express the idiosyncrasies of this vineyard by saying okay as we know, Grenache is the king of the Southern Rhone, Syrah is the queen of the Northern Rhone, and depending whether you're north or south, you'll have more of one right. or the other. And where we are, because of this duality, we have these two very distinctive Grenache and Syrahs, which we thought were more interesting to show as kind of yin and yang, which one showing the, the Grenache-based wine, which is Abelard, because it's mountain Grenache, because we have these very old vines with huge, long, thick roots, because we have a lot of wind that concentrates the berries, we end up with a really muscular, masculine manifestation of Grenache, right. which is very distinctive yeah. and not at all in common with the it's, classic it's softer... It's mountain Grenache. It's mountain Grenache. Yeah, no, it's, it's I mean, old vine mountain Grenache, wow. so it really packs a big a punch. Uh, how, how old are those vines? <laughs> what do you consider old in France? Well, these, wi- these particular vines are about 68 years old. and that, uh, That's old. Older, uh, and they're going strong. Anyway. We have a few uh, missing ones, quite a few missing ones, because in the period while the vineyard was abandoned, it was in Fermage with the local vigneron, and, um, and we did lose a few of those guys. But the ones that are there are real survivors. Right. They're like Gorilla of Grenache. Sure, they're beautiful and I mean, in, <laughs> in their own way. Yeah. Yeah. What was the decision to take on the uh, biodynamic farming principles? I mean, beyond the obvious. Well... The, the vineyard is located in the heart of the UNESCO Biosphere Reserve of the Mont Ventoux. Mm-hmm. And biospheres, as you know, there are a couple in France, there are a number around the world, like the Galapagos. You know, those are areas that have been singled out for having this extraordinary biodiversity uh, in quantity, but also species that you don't find anywhere else, a fauna, a flora. And of course, that translates down into the microbiology of the soils. Now, we have 1,200 different species of butterflies, just to give you an understanding. It's an incredible place. It's Mm. pululating with life. And it's completely protected. Holy fuck. (laughs) I mean, mean, you're talking... uh, uh, I'm speechless. Well, yeah. that's that's one of the things that made it so exciting to start I'm making wines there because you have an environment which is completely protected. You have yeah. uh, the, this microbiology that is so exciting. It allowed us to come to the attention of Claude and Nidia Bourguignon, you know, the famous soil experts that I'm sure uh, you've either met or interviewed here because they're so uh, interesting. What well, is that Selma Long? Is that uh, she part of the... 
and Zelma Long, Zelma Long. Zelma Long, uh, meeting Zelma Long was one of the most important things that ever happened to our vineyard. She is such a grand dame. Uh, I hope she's she's come here as well. Uh, certainly, being the the first, I guess, female enologist to graduate from UC Davis and a real pioneer, yeah. one of the people who believed in the potential of the Californian vineyards to make Grand Cru when people were still chuckling about that and uh, always 15 years at least ahead of her time and having her as a mentor has been really helpful to us in general but to me in particular because I definitely uh, needed and continue to need uh, the feedback and the validation and somebody who just says you know it's worth it these grapes have what it takes you've just got to stick with it and you know, uh, no. if you build it, they will come. Right. Uh, and uh, and that was so helpful and important in those first years when, you know, it's just this happy hermit at the top of this mountain making these wines. Nobody even knew we were right. there 12 right. years just to restore the vineyard before we even made our first wine. Wow. It wow. really was a big leap of faith. Yeah, yeah no kidding. How did you get... I mean, there's so many... Um, probably infrastructure sort of development questions that are flying through my brain, you know, being that that's sort of where my family comes from. But just talk about, like, getting that up and running a little bit, getting power and water and how, you know, getting the the well drilling well, truck up this road oh, that I'm hearing about. I mean, oh, it's just like these things I'm that are like going through my mind, like how you do these things. Right. And it's all probably, you know, 15 times more difficult there than well, it would be here. just cleaning your house. You know when you have to clean your house and there's no, so many know. messes in your house yeah. and you sort of get overwhelmed? I can't imagine stepping onto this property well, let saying, me okay. say that in our house we had two meters of petrified sheep dung. Oh my uh, God. In our <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, that is a... Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say American podcasting first. I don't think anybody has had <laughs> that it took quote. A sledgehammer. Two meters of we had petrified sheep dung. Really? That's a new t-shirt. That's a new t-shirt. It, was, a new yeah, t-shirt. it, was, it is. It was, we, had, we had 13 trucks of it that we had to take out. Oh, my because God. Did in you the make period, compost out of it? Did you, did yes, you just, okay. yes. We have uh, everything we do. Uh, we figured that if the monks... And all those other people had lived there for so many generations with, with no water, with no nothing. electricity. You know, nowadays it's 15 minutes by by car to the local supermarket. In those days, it was four hours on the back of a donkey. Right, that was a day's, so a day's why ride. were they? Yeah. Why were they living there, and how did they do it? And that research really took me on an incredible journey because you really felt like a guardian of this incredibly ancient land, and I feel very responsible for putting to back as much of that lifestyle and as much of that purity of of purpose and place and product as they had for so many centuries. And to do that, we figured that they must have been completely self-sufficient in terms of their food source. So, of course, we have uh, brought back the shepherd, we have our own sheep, but also the vegetable garden, we figured out uh, that... Wait a minute, you said a shepherd. Sorry, you sparked my... (laughs) So, is that a thing? How do you find a shepherd? I want to know that. He's such a great guy. He's actually a young shepherd. Is he, is he Basque? Uh, That's what I just assume all the shepherds are Basque. A little shepherdess uh, who helps him. But those first years, he went nuts. Uh, but that's not a Craigslist thing. How do, you, how do you talk to everyone in, in, the, in the local town and say who's the best shepherd around? You do. It's all word of mouth. Uh, okay. Nothing around there ever happens except for word of mouth. Yeah. And... Um, and that's been a joy. And for the vegetable garden, we figured out which part of the vineyard, because it's all kind of rolling hills up there, would have the most topsoil and figured that they would have done the same. And we went digging and we found the original walls of the, uh, 
of the of the of the orchard and the vegetable right. garden which we rebuilt and that's now our our vegetable garden so we have a farm to table we've done a lot of wow. uh, of stuff to really be as self-sufficient as possible it is such yeah. a beautiful beautiful spot i want to talk about the really rosé for a second because I finally put. Uh, well, I can we mention? Can we mention really quick that okay. we are actually at the Girl and the Fig in Sonoma. We're we're here during business hours. So, uh, on my left is Sandra Bernstein. She was nice enough to let us come Sandra, um, come do the Sandra. show here. We're out on the back patio, and it's uh, starting to get a little bit hot it's here. But if you hear perfect day. if you hear things going on in the background, it's because they're actually open for business. They had a big race in uh, Sonoma today. Hit the road, Jack. Hit the road, Jack. And so th- there's stuff going on. So if you hear a little background noise, that's uh, that's why. And Sandra, thank you. Thank for, you. Uh, so there's a much bunch of people Sandra here in running, running outfits. Right. Hey. And so, yeah, let's get back to this rosé. We opened up uh, first a little bit of Paul Roger, but... I just um, poured out some Paul Roger, which I've never done in my entire life. Way to start oh, the day. <laughs> get to the rosé. Right. I'm really happy about that. The rosé... Um, this is hands down my favorite rosé every year. I think it's usually in the top five uh, globally. And I know uh, Paris, London, uh, they know. But um, here in California, not as many people know about the Chant Bleu Rosé, which for me, I, I don't, that's good. That means more for me. There's this, um, there's this great like tart, citrusy front and, and the minerality of the finish. But the thing that I keep sipping it for is this like hint of... These like tropical fruits that kind of like are teasing me in the mid. Pa- this is this is a pretty good. Yes. Sunday. Yes. And uh, <laughs> Nicole, is it true? Do you use uh, dried peas as a fining agent for this one? <laughs> is that true? I heard that. Somewhere. All right. Let's geek out on rosé okay, production. Please. Let's please. go for it. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, we actually did spend six years deconstructing rosé uh, to try to figure out how to push every little piece of the production. That's another t-shirt. <laughs> Deconstructing, Deconstructing rosé. Rose. <laughs> well, you know, the thing about rosé is that when we started, there weren't that many people who were trying to take rosé that seriously, and all the market was for the cheap and cheery stuff. Yeah. And um, as, as, as you guys know, because you're pros, this whole divide between the direct press rosés and then the signé ones, where signé... There's so many enjoyable ones, but it's really trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Yeah. I mean, you just do not have access to the good stuff. And in, in, in our case, I guess it's all about the lees. So what happened is we said, okay, how are we going to make a rosé that has the hallmarks of the stuff you like, but also has the ones that are typically missing or frustrating for people who are really into well-structured wines? And to do that, we we said, okay, it was literally a checklist. What do we like about rosé? I personally love the fact that it's, it's happy, it's cheerful, it makes you, you know, it has to be a bit flirtatious. It has to be a little I mean, bit... it is pink after all. It is pink, yeah. right? <laughs> so what you want is keeping up that, all that, and you can get a lot of rosés that have that lovely nose and kind of pull you in. The issue with rosé is that if you were to plot that on an, on an aromatic curve, you'd have this huge, big pop at the beginning and then poof it's gone right Right. it's like a little soap bubble oh that's so lovely gone and then it flatlines and then you get that little bitter finish at at the end which it turns out we're able to isolate to the pvpp which is what we were using as the fining agent wow really and so the trick was keep that front part and to do that we started changing (laughs) a lot on the aromatics uh so by we put in some of the aromatic grapes like the Sanso, we put the Viognier, uh, excuse me, the uh, Vermentino. Uh, uh, we planted some of that because that works really well at altitude. Because you can. Because we can. Cause you there can. you go. There you go. <laughs> and then we put in um, 
uh, and and that really boosted the the notes that you were talking about, uh, the tropicals and also the floral ones to complement the nice red berries and all the the f- spice that we get from right. the Grenache and the Syrah. But the trick on it was to how do you fill in that mid palate? How do you get the length, the finish, the ageability, the food friendliness, the complexity, the minerals? You know, how do you get all that stuff to come back in? And that is what took so, a really long time. And we ended up, uh, so certainly it helps that we're at altitude. So we only use the old vines, which, which means that the grapes that come in are really nice. Uh, then we bring it in, of course, in October instead of September. So it's all very cool. Uh, then we use dry ice in the direct press. And then we do these five weeks of cold fermentation with the lees. And it's oh. the lees that are bringing the texture, right. the flavor, the complexity, and that is, uh, I think, what makes the difference. Now, by the time you're finished with all that, uh, of course, you have this very cloudy uh, juice, and right. so to find it, uh, we substituted the PVPP with ground organic green pea powder, uh, since we are working completely organically, and, right. and, and so that It also really makes this vegan. It makes it vegan. Which I think is important for people out there that are vegan or vegetarian that don't know that a lot of wines are fine with uh, fish, fish emulsion, uh, fish emulsion or egg, or egg whites. Egg. Um, we have a lot of vegans that come into the restaurant and we'll, you know, we'll do a seven-course tasting menu that's vegan for them and tailor the entire menu. But then they'll order a, a, a commercial bottle of wine that I know is... It's liquid chemicals are yeah. full, full of fish. And right. And so just yeah. a little shout out to vegans and vegetarians out there. If you want a rosé that you know is... Uh, Truly, uh, oh, are you going to blow my world? Uh, I, I do agree. No, this is important, but also yeah. anyone nowadays should be right. caring about what they're drinking and how and it's made the and what they're paying for, you right. know? They're paying for hand-harvested grapes. They're paying for no chemicals, so everything you use as a substitute is really expensive. They're paying for our work with Claude and Lydia Bourguignon so that when we want to increase the, the yields on the parcels, we plant sorghum and other cereals for five years in order to increase the vegetal matter instead of dumping a bunch of chemical fertilizers into land. Thank you. Cereal grains Believe are time-release nitrogen. You. Right, it's breaking down there slowly through the year, feeding those vines all year long. And we do a, a we do cereal grains mostly oats uh, with nitrogen fixers like you know brassicas and and bell beans. Uh, and then basically what happens is the the nitrogen that the oats need to break down is supplied by the bell beans. And then as it breaks down, it feeds the vines at the end of the season when you need it. Not you know you doesn't need it right now as much as it needs it in to you know to finish that ripening curve at the at the end of the year. So that's. Exactly, and all that's a lot of labor, and labor in France is uh, not cheap, as we all know, and it's headaches, and it's all sorts of things, you know, it's really tempting sometimes to just go out there and bunch of but you know dump Call a bunch Monsanto of chemicals exactly say, give me your best you've got to hold out and you've got to do the do it the long slow hard way and again people who care about that stuff are going to take the time to find you and you'll find them and you'll have this incredible community of people who care about the same things um and you just got to really be prepared to take your time and and find your your people because there are so many commercial pressures especially in the rosé world to go for bling or marketing or chemicals or all sorts of other shortcuts put it in a funny shaped (laughs) bottle and get a celebrity to sell it for you and sam your dad uh phil katuri really drove this whole movement he's Uh, been doing this for 40 years i mean he drove it in here in in california and and 
you know, but what Nicole's talking about are things that, you know, the monks that were living there in the, you know, 900 AD or whatever. Uh, they did. Uh, they were doing yeah. these things also. And, and there wasn't any, you know, there no was no scientists. Up. There was yeah. no, no round there was no, you know, it was just, just farming. Um, it's and to, to uh, when, you know, what, what we're talking about is it's exactly, it's applied technology. You're not doing things like they did in 900 AD, but you're using their best practices. And, and that's how you make, that's how you make great wine in a, you know, that's true to where it is and, and still fits in the modern world. Yeah. Well, it certainly awesome. has a sense of place and your project has worked extremely well. I mean, I love the wines and the rosé, um, Got a couple bottles on order at the Rhone Room, and you know it's, it's it's summertime. I'm pretty sure it's the first wine you like, the first label you ever dropped. Like the first time I was on the radio with yeah. John, and I was like, oh yeah, we, sixteen six hundred, we do Rhones, and he's like, Shannon Blue. Okay, Brian turned me on to it because his his whole goal is to expand somebody's palate, you know, and for me it. It has been expanded, believe me. Listen, yeah. we make wine for the 0.001% of people like that who know, who care, who take the time, who do the research, who take the risk, put it on their menus. I mean, for us, we can't do it without people who invest their knowledge and their time into these things because in the end, it's all about that. And the big commercial brands there's a really a place for them there's a market and they absolutely need to be there and they help us because the, they do bring the people yeah. into the wine world and i have nothing against them uh it just gives us some freedom to be artists and to yeah. create and have the peace of mind to know that there are other people out there who take the time to get to know wines like these nicole you have to tell about the tree the blue oak, yeah, the, the chêne bleu that yes. gave the wine. You its have name. to tell how that came <laughs> about. How the how the oak got its name? It sounds like a Kipling story. Uh, it was. I think, a, I, I think my parents read that one to me when I was. <laughs> there I you go, Sammy. Are you ready to go to bed? <laughs> like we'll, we'll read you the blue oak. No, I got this girl in the fake cappuccino about half dusted. I have a half a glass of Paul Roger and a half a glass of rosé. There's, I'm fired up, ready to go. <laughs> uh, well, one of the things that has fueled everything we did is this belief that you're at, at that level when you're trying to do stuff that's new and different and hopefully relevant for the right people anywhere, you're only as good as the weakest link in the chain, right? It's, it's, it's unforgiving. Anything you do to a standard less than everything else you've done brings everything down to that level. Yeah. And I'm sure Sandra can understand that the person who answers the phone who doesn't take the reservation properly doesn't matter how much love and care she's put into creating the girl in the fig, that client's experience will all be d defined by that one slip. If right? this was a video podcast right now, you'd see Sandra nodding her head and thinking about all the things <laughs> that have happened in the last two weeks that are representing that, and she's pissed off about all Absolutely. of them right now. You better move on. She's sitting next to me. Yeah. I'm getting a little and, intimidated. And, and Lars, the same thing. You know, he's training the best chefs in the world. The one thing he doesn't teach them properly or the one thing they didn't they don't take away, that's going to, they're going to carry that for life so we feel very much that responsibility and that translated also into the name of the wine and into the label because 
uh, we had spent so much time thinking about every little aspect of what we did that we wanted a, a, a name that really represented all of that, but in a very concise way. And that was a big challenge. And we haggled with each other for five years. Nobody could agree. Uh, there were you know, four of us that had to sign off on it because uh, my husband, who, who found the property, and also his, his uh, wonderful sister and, and brother-in-law that, that joined us. Um, and finally, I gave up, and I decided to do a world search. I decided to offer a competition to everyone we ever met uh, <laughs> about uh, helping to find a name. They could submit as many things as they wanted. And there was a little brief. Um, and if they were to you know, choose the name, there was a really nice reward. And on and on, we got hundreds and hundreds of submissions from all over the world. And we plowed through all of them. And we still couldn't agree. And that weekend, I went down with my husband to this, to these beehives because he's a beekeeper in his free time. And do you have bees on property? We do. We're okay. He's very, very serious about his bees. Oh, wow. uh, never Mountain ask honey. him about oh bees God. if you don't want to hear a dissertation <laughs> about bees. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I was looking up at this tree that is right at the border of the vineyard and the forest, so it kind of presides over the vineyard, has a beautiful shape, and this uh, tree sculptor that we work with um, had painted it with copper sulfide to protect it. It had lost a lot of leaves in the drought in 2005, and so it had made this, this bleu tree, right? Um, and I looked up and I said, why don't we call it the Chen Bleu, the blue oak, because we needed something that showed this philosophy that we had, which was to protect and, and preserve all that history, all that natural beauty, that beautiful environment. And all our job was is to kind of make enhanced reality, just bring that beauty to the fore, whether it was the restoration of the property or the vineyard or the quality of the wines that we were making. We wanted to always keep as much of that intact as possible. So he looked up at me and he's like, Duh! Like, that's perfect. Let's call it the Blue Oak. We spent and I the last three months yeah. taking submissions from around the world. Right, and now there you was had it right, right in your under, hand. Exactly. Right. We so, went, did he win the prize? Or no, you won the prize. <laughs> <laughs> we, what we did, or his brother in law and sister uh, instantly agreed as well, which was crazy. Uh, and in five minutes, the whole thing was solved. And so, wow. I decided to uh, spread the prize amongst all the people who had submitted names. Okay. The tree guy probably should have gotten the prize. The tree <laughs> guy, yeah, yeah, he got a prize. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, it is a symbol for all of that. And I think one of the things that strikes people a lot when they when they come is the natural topography there. I think people realize that they're actually in the mountains, but they're on the edge of a tectonic plate, right? You know that this is the area where the bottom of Europe has smashed into the top of Africa and press, put the edge of the plate on its side. So it's actually a ridge, just like the ridge, the ridge vineyard out here. The vines are going straight onto that striation of Jurassic, tri uh, Triassic, Cretaceous. And so because we're in the mountains, when we have no topsoil, the roots have to go into all that crazy minerality. 
but interestingly, I think it all comes back together because one of the things we've been learning a lot about, and I knew nothing about this for the first 10 or 15 years of the project, is that um, the Templar monks who had selected our, our place uh, had a whole belief system that is very similar to Feng Shui, that there were certain energy fields. They were very, very knowledgeable about energy and they thought that there were places where you had celestial energy coming down and terrestrial energy coming up wow. into energetic superhighways. That's cool. And these were kind of energetic wow. staples that would keep the heavens <laughs> and the earth together because remember they still thought it was flat. And so oh, they right. would position themselves <laughs> there yeah. thinking that it would kind of energize them spiritually. But the interesting part is that when you see these striations of rock, many of the volcanic strata, because you know the Mont Ventoux is volcanic, you have a lot of volcanic activity where you have the tectonic, you have a lot of iron ore. And the iron ore in the soil uh, actually creates a magnetic field that is identifiable with little um, scientific yeah. equipment. And so... It's very interesting to ask yourself whether all of this comes back together because they have found all over the world that in places that now turn out to be on the edge of tectonic plates, you have a lot of temples, you have a lot of places that have sacred right. uh, connotations. Very good and energy. Very good energy yeah. in the literal sense yes. of the word yes. uh, uh, right. as I'm, well. I'm so now dying. To go to, the, to go visit here, <laughs> I might see you in November. You know, well, you you'll know, be you'll be <laughs> just finishing the rosé. Well, I think the timing could be pretty good on that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is. You you they do, do a lot of cool stuff there. Just besides making wine, we briefly can you talk about? Uh, you've got some intensive classes on uh, winemaking. I think you have uh, some uh, some cooking things immersion going on things well. going on. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, I used to be director of programs in a think tank, um, and I, I learned there the, the power of bringing great people together around important topics and how you're able to solve big questions that absolutely nobody, no matter what their expertise, can really figure out on their own. And if you really break it down, you ask the right questions to the right people, and you get everyone to put their best ideas together, you can really... Uh, move the dial on stuff and um, so one of the things that surprised me when I joined the, the wine world uh, was that there wasn't really a mechanism to do that in a pretty systematic way uh, getting winemakers together is a bit like trying to herd cats you know the whole beauty of winemaking is there <laughs> I think that's really unfair to the cats <laughs> to be honest <laughs> The beauty of winemaking is that you can be off in your little world doing your thing, marching to your drummer, and it's such a luxury to be able to have a business, but also you know, it's art and business together. So you get these really interesting personality types. Um, but then one of the things that was really surprising me when I joined is um, how it was that Grenache wasn't a better-known grape. Uh, when we started working with Grenache, we're just so delighted by how exciting it is to you know, to see how it will interact with you, and 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 we realized it was the most widely planted red grape in the world, and yes, and the most important in economic terms, and yet it wasn't as well known as some right. of the other ones. So we said, okay, why don't we get a bunch of people together to think about that, and that. Long story short, ended up in the uh, International Grenache Symposium in 2010, where right. we had 
270 people from 23 countries on my first year of trying to sell wine. That was a, a total disaster. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't end up in the hospital. I think that was the... Uh, one of the hardest things I ever had to do. But the great thing that happened is that by getting all those people who were so knowledgeable about Grenache and about wine more specifically, because you don't want to just inv invite a bunch of people who love Grenache to sit around and right. say how great Grenache is, right? You need to create a hologram of the situation by getting many points of view. <laughs> and, um, you know, creating Grenache Day, Grenache Night, Grenache Association, um, and, you know, Grenache the Tattoo, all of that. Uh, <laughs> I actually added the Brian, word... Brian, don't, don't <laughs> show don't, don't us do where it. your Grenache no, 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 Tattoo don't is. Don't do that. No. Brian, uh, okay. <laughs> 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 Keep your pants on, Brian. <laughs> Grenache Day. Grenache. International International Grenache Day. Grenache Day. Uh, it's so. uh, September... 20th it's this the year? third Friday in September, Friday in September every year. Yep, and uh, widely celebrated and here in Sonoma. Good actually. on you guys. Well, because and of because of yes. one person in the and there you go, the moving the dial. Yeah. I just uh, I, I added the word Grenachista to the Urban Dictionary. Um, shout out <laughs> to Casey. Can we get yeah. a shout out to Casey Graybell, uh, who has actually purchased the uh, trademark of the fist and the Grenachista. Uh, he's really? a local guy he, here. He, he, he bought those? He did. It, very interesting. He did. Yeah. Do you Good know do you know Kelly McAuliffe? Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't know Kelly? Oh. Kelly was my first wine friend. Can you imagine being some blonde Kelly American was your chick showing up making wine that he's no one's ever heard of in the south of France? He's and how bold. excited you are when you meet, you know, a, a fellow American well, sommelier working in, we in, stayed in there. the town next door to us. He's got a beautiful home next door that he rents, and I could have stayed there another six weeks. Yeah. You know, oh. just Kelly for president, absolutely. Kelly for president. Yeah. Can he be president of France and America? <laughs> now, now he. You know what? These days, I would say I'll take that. I take it. <laughs> He's basically so the Rhone region's <laughs> representative. Because when we were there, he was gone. He was in Budapest. Yep. Showing off Rhone wine. Shaking hands and kissing babies. He's the you Grenache betcha. hype man. He's the flavor flavor of Grenache. <laughs> <laughs> The family sure is nice, and the, and the place sure is nice. Aww. And we will be back there yeah. right next year, I can guarantee. Yeah. Well, you know, Grenache has been fascinating to watch because now we, uh, we saw in Sopexa last year that it just leapfrogged out of the blue uh, in the last couple of years, and hopefully in, in, in large part to the work that we've all been doing to bring Grenache people together around the world uh, from 12th uh, to 5th position. In um, in terms of consumer appreciation, uh, well, certainly in the U.S. we've seen that uh, all the numbers yeah. are really exciting for Grenache producers. I actually tweeted this earlier this week uh, in regards to uh, Eric Asimov's article about the the ancient Garnacha vines uh, yeah. in you know at, Spain, outside of Barcelona yeah. or outside of Madrid. Yeah, and you know uh, there's a, definitely a question that that I get asked a lot in the, in, in the tasting house, and I'm sure. Um, you know, anybody who's dealing with wine-consuming public, everybody wants to know, you know, what the next trends are. And uh, there's, there is so many reasons why I think that Grenache is the next, you know, high-trend uh, variety. And, and, and it starts with uh, climate. And, and you deal with, you know, you look at um, Sonoma and Napa Valleys, and, and when you're hitting uh, 100 degrees 20 days plus in Calistoga, 
Cabernet is going to have a harder time than that than, than Grenache is. Um, well, Grenache is a is is the ultimate eco superstar when it comes to grapes, right? Because yeah. it's not just the heat; it is very resistant to any extreme weather, right, you know, right. storms, everything, because of that crazy root system and those power drills, you know, and they yeah. get to those subterranean water tables, and they're kind of protected from all the shenanigans that mm. are happening uh, in the, you know above above uh, the earth. So. From that point of view, it's it's very well poised. I think the other thing about Grenache is that certainly in the U.S., I feel there's such a, an, an evolution in the wine knowledge of so many people where they're really connecting more and more with the whole concept of terroir, which, of course, in the old world has, has been very right. well known for so long. And, of course, That's why you we got know, stuck with the, that <laughs> appellation system. There you go. So we know that, it, that as you're starting on your wine journey, it's really helpful to connect with a certain with the grapes that have a very distinctive and easily recognizable style, like Cabernet, like Syrah. And when we talk to consumers, we kind of joke around that those are what we call character actors. You know, if you look at um, John Wayne or uh, Jack Nicholson and you like that style, Bruce Willis, whatever, you're going to a movie, you're expecting that style, you're happy to go to something that you knew you were going to like, right? And now, as people evolve towards really wanting to taste terroir, I think, uh, of course, that's where grapes like Pinot and Grenache come in because they transmit that sense of place so so much so, more literally. Yeah. And so it's a logical evolution in the palate of, a, of someone who wants to know more about wine to connect with grapes that are going to let them taste that. So we joke that those are more like uh, method actors, like... The, the Meryl Streep or Daniel Day-Lewis and all that, and so those are those are um, actors that amaze you with their ability to morph into a completely different role. I, I, you have no idea how much of what you just said. If you come into the tasting house in the next three months, I'm going to be like parroting it because it's the conversation that I try and have with people all the time about the, the accessibility of terroir and Grenache. I mean, that you know, 16600, we line up three or four different single vineyard Grenaches from around the valley that we farm and and show people you know from the valley floor to a rockier hillside on the on the on the west side to the east side and all of a sudden you're like wow these wines are distinctly different distinct. and then I, I do it with Zinfandel too but we're not I can't say that here but this uh, is a project this coming is up with uh, Philippe Combi that you guys are working on too as well right, right? Philippe, this is Philippe. Be, uh, right. so yeah we Philippe. got Kelly McAuliffe shout out so in this one we got a Philippe Kel shout Kelly, out in this one Kelly is Kelly for president and Philippe as we all know who's the pop of Chateauneuf right. uh, he's uh, an incredible person who's had an incredible bearing on what we did in fact uh, we could not be here today without him because so he, Philippe is he built with you guys he he advised casting. us okay. on our winery. Like yeah. if there anyone listening to this is thinking about building a winery, you know, note to self: Hired. never listen to those consultants who spend their life, you know, building wineries. Look, talk to the topologists and right. have them validate your plan yeah. and have it set up in the way they would want to work. We have that is so hugely influential uh, to why you're able to, to make certain quality wines, whereas the other guys are really more interested in selling you a bunch of expensive equipment. Right. And Concrete's expensive. You guys had yeah. a um, lady on last week on the Memorial Day Melanie. show. Melanie. Melanie. Uh, who's is going to buy down at uh, Purchasing a vineyard uh, east of Paso Robles. Correct. 
That's amazing. Uh, so yeah. we've got some very interesting listeners. Well, we, we uh, told her that she might be able to get Phil Katuri down there uh, one time. Once. Yeah. One time. Once. And she'd have to really impress him to get <laughs> yeah. him down there again. And maybe Philippe uh, would be willing to make that drive one Phil time. And have the two Phil's show up. Right. I, I mean, you know. Right. Phil and serious, Phil. Serious, serious, uh, serious okay, action. I'm hijacking the mic. I think you should. Okay. So Sandra I, Bernstein, everybody. I, yeah, this is Sandra. I, I so resonate with this conversation about Grenache because I feel in 21 years only having Rhone varietals on our wine list, we have always educated. That's like our whole plan. We can't just expect that people are going to come in. Um, we have to deal with all of those issues about trying to, you know, if they only know Chardonnay and Pinot or Cab, we're already disappointing them. And then, you know, we're presenting these other things. But what I notice the most is that our list has definitely shifted. Um, we used to have a huge amount of Viognier. Now the whites are all a little bit more, um, you know, we're finding more and more interesting Rhone whites, more great expressions. And Syrah as well. And our Syrah is a Mendocino, which is so light and so delicate, almost Pinot-esque, versus some of the bolder, bigger Grenaches that you would taste. And I, I find it really interesting that it does speak of terroir. It does speak of apples, you know, Granny Smith, Macintosh, you know, that not all grapes produce the same. And I'm also of the, you know, let the grapes grow let the sun hit them let you know the less is more dappled in and sunlight you're really gonna right. get that beautiful thing but I, for me grenache has been the funnest wine to educate on and i really think it's our largest segment of when we're buying you know i think that's where we're buying i'd love to have the conversation with you about uh, and maybe this is for another episode um how you've seen the styles of those wines evolve over the last 21 years because, you know, there's probably nothing moving faster in the wine world. You know, and 20 years ago, Cabernet was Cabernet, maybe Pinot King. a little bit. But, yeah. Um, the way that, from from our side of the table, how is you know, have you right. seen those changes as far as the way wines have been produced yeah. and, and presented I, to you guys? I think be it fascinating. becomes... I mean, probably we could talk about that for hours. Yeah, Did I have to I open mean, one from each year? I like this okay. idea. <laughs> it becomes, um, I think, a very individual thing with connecting people's tastes, people's personalities with a specific wine and trying to connect them with not just all the terminology around wine, but what resonates the best with them, what they're going to enjoy. And, you know, for me, I love the fact I could put 10 Grenaches on the table blind, and I don't think someone would say they were all Grenache. I think they would... Never. Be, even yeah. even the vaunted Kelly McAuliffe, and, and, <laughs> as we're talking yeah, about. and I, mean, I, I love that. I love that about... Um, you know, I think it gives the reputation of Grenache, it boosts it because it is such a powerful grape that is able to do all those things and age and be drunk young and rosé and white. And I mean, I, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. And I think um, the more press and the more authors and the more tasting that people do is just going to keep getting it rolling. I do think International Grenache Day has helped um, globally. Well, we celebrate, that work. we celebrate it right here at your place. 
I mean, what better place? Man? That's right. So mark your calendars, everyone. Well, and I think I, even I with the uh, even with Heloise and Abelard, you can see such stylistic differences in those two red blends Isn't that, that you crazy? make. Isn't that crazy? And those are exactly the same grapes from the same top part of the vineyard. Right. And top both in quality but also in elevation because the yeah. drainage is so good up there. How do you treat them differently then? So I reversed the blends. Uh, so we, we decided at the beginning that we would put, we wanted yin and yang. So one was going to be the Grenache blend with a bit of Syrah and the other one the, the Syrah with a bit of Grenache. So that together they would kind of make a hologram of... And then of, a little Viognier edition uh, And then, well, right? right, when yeah. we were blending the Syrah, she was, our Syrah is really, it's got that elegant north, uh, northern Rhone structure and precision and finesse but just like some of the northern Rhone Syrahs she can be a little bit austere and a little bit like that woman in the Chanel tailleur who's impressive but but a bit intimidating and so like that clap that we couldn't the, the 96 so it was finally in a great place to drink 22 years later 22 years <laughs> later there you go so so the idea was to flesh her out with a bit of this this very voluptuous grenache that we have and then uh, put a little splash of that viognier like the, the perfume behind the ears yeah. you know to give her to kind of pull you into the glass so the viognier comes out and grabs you and then yanks you in and then you start dealing with the truffle, the, the green olives, the spice, you know, all the stuff that, the that, they, that the syrup bre- brings. Huh. So, uh, and, so that's the, and that's the Eloise. That's the Eloise. Okay. Um, Which is a great story. If, if yeah. I mean, it's sort of like the uh, French, French Romeo and Juliet, um, but involves a teacher and a student. Eloise and Abelard. Very French. Very oulala. Isn't that the president of France right now? It's <laughs> not a politically correct story, but, um, <laughs> but a beautiful <laughs> story nonetheless. Yeah, no, they were uh, they were extraordinary people in, in the 11th century who kind of changed the, the course of Western civilization. But the reason that they, they're they very modern and relevant today is Nicole, this is why I love you. The, you just said, the, now the two names of your wines, they, they changed the course of history in the 11th century. <laughs> She's talking about her wines. This is... A, <laughs> please, continue. <laughs> no, you know, in every generation, you need people to, to deconstruct and rebuild because otherwise... You know, you just repeat yourself, and that's that you go nowhere. And I, and that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about bringing a lot of conversation to the future of Grand Cru, because I think that there are extraordinary wines in the world, starting with France, as we know. But one of the things we all need to be doing is figuring out where the world is going and helping our finest wines remain relevant to the new generations, to all the disruption, all that technology that's changing, how people source wine, how they review wine, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we read about that stuff every day in, in, in everything from the newspapers with the geopolitics and the tech and the financial stuff. And then in the, in the dedicated wine press, we hear about all sorts of innovation, etc. How do you pull that all together into something that really... Uh, charts a course for 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 fine wine, and I think to do that, a lot of fine wine makers are asking themselves the same questions. But it's hard when you're on your own in your little vineyard, worrying about your harvest. So I thought it was important to create a forum where everyone could come together. Uh, it started last year for our 10th anniversary. Uh, decided to. Uh, create a little round series of roundtables to get I called it fine minds for fine wines and the idea was to get 
people who really enjoy thinking about wine. You know, not just making it. Making it is awesome, but thinking about it is a different approach where you have to have a, an interest in thinking about the greater good, not just your six-month sales or whatever it is. And to do that, um, I've been kind of putting the word out, and it's been a bit of a self-selecting group uh, from people who are at very active in the fine wine world in any aspect of it, but also people from all those ecosystems that touch on fine wine. And I define those, and, and maybe I've forgotten some, so I, I love to hear from people what they think about this, but obviously the stuff that affects all of us, like we said, the geopolitics, the tech, the financial environment, but also things specific to fine wine, which are you know the future of luxury, uh, society, what are those Gen Z thinking? You know, what are their values? How are we going to connect with them and make stuff that's interesting or relevant to them? Uh, and also, bringing it back to Sandra and, and Lars, uh, the future of fine dining. We've seen so much disruption. We've seen the deformalization, the decentralization of fine dining. 20 years ago, if you were an ambitious young chef, you had to be on, in a main city, on a main street, with white tablecloths and a bunch of guys with bow ties. Um, nowadays, you know, the top restaurants in the world can be you know, two hours from Copenhagen, some guy foraging for ferns and ants in his backyard, right? Uh, you can have incredible gastronomy like at The Girl in the Fig, but in a really relaxed environment where you no longer have to wear you know, suit and tie and all of that. And Lars, certainly you, 21 years at CIA, you've seen these changes up, up close and personal. So I'm convinced that that's spilling over into the, the fine wine world, the Grand Cru also, deformalization, decentralization. I'm hoping, and of course this is self-serving, but I've seen it, that, that little micro-terroirs, no matter where they are, even if they're not on the correct bank in Bordeaux or whatever, if their land has the right story to tell and their grapes have the capacity to say something important and age-worthy and, and you know, special and different, and the craftsmanship that goes into them is of the right standard, that they can get a little seat at that table as well. Absolutely. And I yeah. think consumers, because of technology and information and education, like Sandra said, and people like you who spend the time to teach people about those things, they can find their way to those places and to those wines in the same way as they're now finding those, their way to those restaurants, no matter where they, where they are. And I'm sure, Sandra, you have people from all over the world who come here to, to have your food because they've heard about it because your reputation. You know, you don't have to be, uh, you know, in, in Manhattan and, you know, on the Upper East Side in order to have people read about you and want to try your food. So I think there's so much important stuff that's happening, but none of us have the capacity to figure that stuff out on their own. And that's why I think it's so important to have these little forums. And what happened is last year, it generated so many new ideas and, and so many people were, were kind of excited about it that they decided to host it in Champagne this year. Uh, so it's going to be from the 5th to the 7th in Champagne. Fine Minds for Fine Wines. Uh, the website, I think, is FM number four fw.org and anybody who wants to come is welcome to join uh and again i want to come 
Yeah, there you Sam, go. You're you in. Wanna, you want to go too? I mean, can we work the, work the flights out and everything? Uh, you got a travel agent, John? We got somebody. British Air, British first Air. class. There you go. British Air, That's first it, class. Also, All right, John's paying. You heard yeah, it here on the winemakers. <laughs> but you can also, uh, if you can't make it, um, there's also, it's all open source. We publish all the reports for everyone to be able to share. That's totally right. the spirit of right. it. I'm all about collaboration. I'm trying to bring that 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 mindset into the French winemaking world because I think that it's been so important, so successful for the Californian wines to work together and raise the barn. And I think there's so much exciting stuff that's happening in France, but because people march to their own drummer, they can't always get the value from collaborating. And I, you know, even on our bottles at the bottom where it says, non mihi non tibi sed nobis, which means not mine, not yours, but ours. It's really Wait, say that again because there, <laughs> there was some background noise. Not mine, not yours, we'll but say it, ours. No, say, it, say it in French. <laughs> <laughs> it's in Latin. Oh, it's in Latin. Uh, <laughs> Dope. <laughs> I couldn't hear it. That's why, Brian. Don't look at me like that. Don't behind those pink sunglasses. Come on, man. Well, we really believe in that, no. and we think it's essential. And we think that, you know, if it's happening, look, even where we are in the Ventoux, right? So much exciting stuff. All these incredible micro terroirs at altitude. And again, Ventoux not always defined exactly by the Appalachian, because you right. can be at the upper reaches of Gigondas or in Bombe de Venise or whatever. But even so, you have a lot of really, really interesting young winemakers moving in and totally transforming the place. There's incredible energy. There are people like um, Evan Baca. There's people like um, uh, the Kings at Chateau Inong. There's Pesquier. There's Fondrage. There's a bunch of us who are convinced that the quality of our grapes really uh, has its own little place because of, of the conversion of the really exciting soils and also the the altitude and and working together we're seeing just so much energy and i'm absolutely convinced that within 10 or 15 years this will be one of the great emerging regions or emerged hopefully by then where you've seen like in priorat and oregon and, and a lot of the regions in california as well that um when the soils are there to support the ambitions of the young winemakers you can really really move the dial I, when the soils are there to support the ambitions of young winemakers. Right. I mean, right. I, I don't think you could sum up uh, what it takes in 2018 to make great wine, then the soil has to be there to support it. And, and, and oh, yeah. when you look at places that are super well-known, I could name names, but I won't champagne, uh, that they're not <laughs> loving the soil the way and, and giving back to the soil and so it's there to support the next generation in, in ways oh, that they should. Criminal. Yeah. Criminal uh, what's happening in some places. And luckily, uh, you know, a lot of people are figuring that out the hard way, but right. they are figuring it out. Even Bordeaux, you see more and more people converting to biodynamism, all the same people that used to laugh right. at it yeah. when it first came on the map. And Champagne is faced with a very similar yeah. uh, Nicole, fork in the road. Um, France had a pretty tough year with a lot of hail and don't tell me about it we got what, whacked what's so the hard oh you my god did. oh my god right. we're, we're down 40 we're, we were down 40% and then at the last wow. minute two days before harvest we had something that had never happened before uh, the wild boars attacked our viognier. Oh, God. And they never do that because one of the things we did was set up a wild boar spa. If anyone has wild boar problems. A wild problems boar spa? In, yeah, in their, uh, in their I mean, vineyard. I'm intrigued. That, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> How do you get a reservation? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 
because we're trying to work in this very, it's not just biodynamic, it's actually fully sustainable, right? You're in the heart of a, of a biosphere. You're looking at solutions that go way beyond the traditional organic and biodynamic. Every animal species, we have top scientists in the Mont Ventoux uh, biosphere that, that, that help us figure out the right and solutions. And those them. guys are, the, the scientists are there anyway because it's a biosphere correct right? okay. correct and so for the boars um the only reason they 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 have these incursions into the vineyard is when they don't get enough of the stuff that they need elsewhere because they don't like to come so close to the house so we have a pond which is right by the vegetable garden and we we made a second little uh basin for them in a very shaded area with like all the perfect mud conditions and everything they need and it keeps them mud way bath off. For mud bath for boars. <laughs> and it keeps them off the property. Uh, it keeps them out of the vineyard. Unfortunately, this year, the drought conditions were such that they they just came in and they ravaged the uh, viognier because they were so thirsty. And the uh, viognier tasted the sweetest. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and it was ready the first. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for coming on. And Sandra, thank you so much for being a wonderful hostess. I'm booking a spot at the Wild Boar Spa. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. You don't have to do that. You okay. can just come and stay with us. Okay. We did uh, open a, a bed and breakfast. We have at the tasting room. We have, uh, you know, we serve these lovely lunches for people. We have farm to table. We, we serve Provençal special specialties in these bento boxes. We're always... Uh, is so excited when visitors decide to venture up you know, off the beaten path to the top of our little mountain and, and keep well, us company. Uh, we I'll, love I'm, that. I'm and, coming. and there's yeah, a great too. restaurant just down the hill. So, anyway, we should let well, you, how do you eat how do breakfast. You, how do you get? How do you get Nicole's wine? I mean, that's that's the biggest challenge here. And I mean, other than the road room. room. Um, so. We're, um, How am I getting my? We're, we're very, case of the we're very, very happy and lucky that we, our wines are distributed in the U.S. Uh, through Wilson Daniels. In fact, I'm here on their 40th anniversary tour, and they're extraordinary company to work with. And uh, so, I have actually, through them, put together an elaborate. Um, I have a, a little map, a little Google My Map, uh, with anyone who has Any, our, our okay. wines and I'm always uh, happy to help so you either shoot me an email okay. uh, on nicole at chenbleu.com or Wilson Daniels can always sort you out yeah. but thank you for asking is there asking. a way that we can like, put because a link up to that <laughs> when we post this uh, aren't you kind I, I do appreciate it okay. so much because it is all word of mouth and, yeah. and I do appreciate it so much uh, when you, you spread the word on this we'll, tiny we'll little winery. and especially Spreading words on, on tiny little wineries yeah. is uh, one of our specialties. <laughs> no, and also this really exciting region, which is really, I think, has uh, has everything to be uh, very up and coming. So I uh, hope you'll all come to visit because it's a beautiful oh, area. Oh, we're coming. We're Brian in. And I yeah. we're, we're in. So. And I think you guys can tell just from talking to Nicole for whatever it was the last 45 minutes, I can spend three or four hours talking yeah, about this was uh, I've learned uh, more in this one. You did an hour time um, today. Yeah. Not too bad. You know... Um, She's a, dis she's a disruptor, <laughs> uh, but at the same time, she's she's making these fists in the air for the disruptors. Wines, right? Um, and from the think tank to the wine tank um, <laughs> has made a seamless transition, and we're so happy that you did. Well, it's such a joy to be here with you, and I think uh, you know having now a think tank amongst the wine tanks. Right. Uh, anybody uh, that has an interest in participating in this discussion and you know 
thought about where we should all go from here and who we want to be when we grow up. Uh, you know, love to, to be in touch with them and, and let's, let's just make our collective future as exciting as it p could possibly be. Cheers to that. Amen. Yeah, there you go. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, we've had uh, Nicole Rollet from Shen Blue. One of my favorite wines. I'm very touched. And one, one of yeah. the most beautiful spots I've ever been on this earth. Nice. And I did, I did not know it was a 65 million year old tectonic plate running through there, yeah. which is totally cool. Yeah. So, uh, Brian Casey, thank you. Sandra, thank yeah. you so thank you much. Thank you so much. Sandra. This amazing setting. Broadcasting yeah. from... The girl and the fig in the back. It's a beautiful day in Sonoma. Service, we got people applauding at other tables for us. They're like, you know what it is. People with headphones on, they're like... Sam Katuri, <laughs> and we will talk to you. Kyle, thanks for doing running the board. The board. Yeah, we got yeah, Kyle yeah, Reynolds we a, running the board Can we today. call him our producer? He yeah, is. He's the he producer. Is. Kyle, Kyle the producer. Our producer right. now. We're growing. We're growing. And we miss Bart Hansen today. Shout out He's to Bart. off on assignment. But John, John, can I just say it's nice to have you back. And I know this uh, this was an important Thank show you. to you because oh, yeah, of the Chambly Wines. And the we know, haven't seen John in a couple months, and he, he came out of the house today for this. Well, thank all you, right. Brian, for instigating all of this, and, and thank you all. It's an absolute joy to spend this Sunday afternoon. I can't yeah. imagine being in a better place with better people. Uh, all right. Wow. Thanks. Love, Everybody, we'll see you next week. All Thanks. right. Thank you.